Welcome to another episode of Ladywood, the show where two huge fans of Deadwood and one newbie discuss it through a feminist lens. My name is Brandy Sperry. I'm a writer here in Los Angeles. My name is Lynn Sternberger. I'm a TV writer uh, here in LA. And my name is Sita Hishan, a stand-up comedian and writer. Today we'll be discussing the 11th episode of the third season, The Catbird Seat, written by Bernadette McNamara and directed by Greg Feinberg. Uh, Bernadette McNamara has been credited as a producer on the show, but never as a writer. And looks like she worked with David Milch a lot in the past on like NYPD Blue and stuff, but no writing credits since then. So Mm -hmm. interesting. I hope she's not one of those who got like pushed out of the industry for bad reasons. That's all I'll say. (laughs) (laughs) You're always looking for the insidious behavior beneath the, uh, just fact that we know very little about. Yeah. (laughs) This first aired August 20th, 2006. Hearst follows one close call with a more on-target one, forcing Bullock to cut short a campaign speech in Sturgis and uniting Deadwood in its grief for the death of one of their own. Trixie attempts to exact revenge. Swearingen, Wu, and Adams plan their retaliation. Tolliver becomes more and more uneasy with his pariah status. So guys, we got to pour one out here. This is, this is a sad one. I had totally forgotten this. I, it was devastated. I had not forgotten at all. And I have spent the last six months really scared that I was going to accidentally spoil this for Sita. Oh, Sita, what did you think? <laughs> oh my, I was devastated. <laughs> I, I like literally like cried at the screen. No, <laughs> I think he died in front of his dog, too. He did. He did. At least he wasn't alone in his final moments. At least the dog didn't, like, try to save him and also get shot or something. (laughs) That would have been doubly devastating. It would have. I didn't realize it happened here. I didn't remember that Ellsworth died. And I was like, why is he talking? Why are we getting this whole scene with the dog? Like, not that I mind it. I think Ellsworth and the dog are cute. But, man, they had lulled me into a sense of, like, security in that Mm -hmm. moment. I was like, oh, this is bucolic and adorable. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, it's really good writing, though, I think, because I was trying to think as the sequence was going on, and particularly the second time I watched it, that, like, is there any other character who could have elicited these reactions from everyone in the town as that body goes by? And there really isn't, you know, the sense of everyone's personal grief, as well as knowing exactly what this symbolizes for the greater safety of everyone is so well done. Completely. And when he's rolling, when he's being rolled, I should say, through town in the back of that uh, cart, and we just get the reaction shots, we don't actually have to see much of Ellsworth himself. It's so powerful. I mean, the acting that's from uh, Molly Parker. Paula Malcolmson is also great. Yeah, Paula Malcolmson is, I think she's the tour de force of the, the whole episode. I mean, I'm not a huge fan of like and tits for shock value but this is how you do it because it was it was tits as a distraction so that she could have a clear shot at Hearst it was it was well done I mean when when she first did that in the middle of the street I was just like what's going on what's Trixie going to do and but as soon as she showed up in front of George Hearst's door with that derringer and and like he looked at her chest before he looked at her face and I was like a little bit of misogyny just goes a long way. <laughs> she was using it to her advantage for sure, but it also just 
felt really powerful to see a shirtless woman with a gun on a mission. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's a great sequence. And I really wish she had just taken a second shot, though. Mm-hmm. Like, come on, girl. Make sure you get the job done if you're going to do it. Is it one of those guns that you have to, like, reload? Does it only carry one bullet? That seems silly. It must have at least two in there, right? Yeah. I don't know. And there's really nice uh, a nice symmetry of Trixie shooting somebody with her tiny derringer just, like, at the beginning, just in the pilot, and then Al calls mm-hmm. Loopy Cunt. <laughs> you, yeah. Like, you see the full of that three seasons later where in the pilot, Al was going to kill her, and then... Uh, by this episode, there was no way that Al could ever fathom killing Trixie, even to save himself or to save the town. Totally. Yeah, Brandy, if only she'd taken the second shot. I mean, well, this, I feel like, in another show, the death of Hearst would mark the end of a season. And we don't get that here. Right. So other things that happen in this aftermath, Bullock has to come back. I mean, I'm not really sure why they bother with this, like, going out of town, coming back for the campaigning, other than, I guess, I didn't even realize until, like, these episodes that this was a countywide election that Bullock Mm -hmm. is standing for and that he has to do anything anywhere else. So, to me, it feels like just a weird excuse to keep Seth out of some of the scenes, but that's fine, I guess. Um, And just a moment for Harry and his flatulence, speaking of calling back to things we've had... (laughs) (laughs) reoccurring over the show some good fart jokes in this sequence seems he embarrassed himself in front of martha and he's quite devastated about it yeah this is more like a scene that we didn't see that he we didn't see that right no (laughs) yeah that we're hearing about um and i was like this has no bearing on on the drive of this episode i do (laughs) wish i mean i think that this uh the way that the top of this episode plays out is a result of them having to work their magical timeline because it feels like this is the, the opening is the night sort of that we left off on. Uh, Mm -hmm. Everybody's sort of like bunkered in, in their space. And now we have to send Seth away. Whereas we could have sent him away in the last episode, maybe if things weren't so condensed, but now it's like, Okay, we're going to discuss you leaving town. Okay, you're leaving town. Yeah. Okay, you're coming back. Yeah, it's weird that he left again. I would think he would have been like, fuck it, I'm staying. You know, my ex, who I still love, got shot at. Everything's about to go to hell. I'm not going to go to Sturgis to talk to some fucking soldiers whose votes are already bought. It's weird. So while he's giving his little stump speech, which is, he's not really a great orator, I just got to say. It's no. a very stilted delivery. He gets word of the shooting. He rushes back. Now, before he gets there, I believe we pop in on the schoolhouse where Jane, Joni, and Martha have gotten word of what's happened. And Jane has another, should I go help kind of the men do the thing that's to do with, you know, Hearst and the shooting? But instead, she decides to play Duck, Duck, Goose. Yeah, I I guess the charitable interpretation is that she's, still guarding the children just in case something happens, but it's a, it's quite a little silly scene. And Duck Duck Goose is a terrible game, by the way. I don't know why this has endured the test of time. That's my pet peeve. It's a terrible game. That's your take. 
<laughs> I kind of agree. It's a game that discourages movement <laughs> and encourages pl- like complacency, right? <laughs> it's like impossible to catch the person. They're already standing when they take off at a full run. I mean, Brandy, come on. You're, you're thinking about it from like a participant's perspective. You should be thinking about it from the parent's perspective who's like, how do I exhaust this child faster? <laughs> oh, I stand here and let them run in circles. <laughs> I swear to God, that's why it has stood the test of time. Clearly, clearly nobody here has uh, been a camp counselor. I was. No, I was. (laughs) Kids always want to play this game. And I'm always like, this is so fucking stupid, (laughs) y'all. I love it. Um, I mean, I wish that Jane was in on the action. But at this point, she has been sent off to uh, Womanland, where she just talks to women and children. And a little bit of General Fields interaction sort of at the beginning of the season. But yeah, she hasn't she and Charlie Utter still talk a little bit, but occasionally they seem to be coming around on each other. Um, So Hearst walks uh, escorted to Doc Cochran's so that Doc can treat his wound. He's not doing it very delicately because we know who he sides with. But we do get the whole Hearst Ellsworth backstory from Hearst's perspective, which is interesting. And he's trying to convince everybody that basically he always gets blamed for these things, even though it's just proximity. Not convincing. Yeah. I don't think Doc's convinced. I don't think anybody's buying it. Um, it was a, it was a weird scene to me because Hearst could have just spent that scene like in silence. <laughs> Like, it didn't make sense. Like, I didn't understand the motivation for Hearst to try to exonerate himself in front of Doc Cochran. I don't know how much Hearst knows about Doc Cochran, but it didn't, it would not, like, make his treatment any better if Doc thought better of him. Does that make sense? Yeah. Is that the reason he was doing it? Because I I was confused on that point as well, because it's not to his purposes to have anyone think that he wasn't the one who orchestrated Ellsworth's death, right? Like, that's why he's doing this, for the intimidation yeah, yeah. factor. So I just, yeah, I guess maybe uh, he was worried about his medical care in that moment. And Doc definitely had his little tweezer tool in his shoulder and was written around, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he was he was like, how can I inflict hurt on this man who has hurt so many, but still be a decent doctor. I'm just going to poke his wound. He should have hacked up a loogie on him. He wasn't coughing very much in this episode. I was like, is the doc better? I mean, I hope yeah. he is, but yeah. you know. My, my wife watched this one with me and she was like, he's not dead. That subplot seems to have been dropped just so we could have more time with the actors. I think uh, it seems, it seems likely. So then he also, we see him treat, well, not really treat, but he goes to Alma and has a conversation with her. At this point, Bullock's back. Bullock is with Sophia. And he basically says, Alma, it would be a good idea for Sophia to be able to see Ellsworth's body because we don't have all the details of how it happened, but it's likely that her parents, she never understood the finality of their deaths because he, mm-hmm. she didn't witness them. And then and Alma is like, you're, you know what? You're right. Okay. Really poignant conversation and really good acting from Brad Dorff and Molly Parker, as always, in that scene. Yeah, and she's become the mom that Sophia needs, weirdly, even though we don't know how she got off the drugs the last time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> which I still take issue with. This episode has a lot of callbacks to season one because, again, that's like how season one opened is with the massacre of Sophia's family. So for them to sort of bring the details of that horrifying massacre, which, if I remember correctly, was caused by Al Swerdjian's road agents, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Really incredible juxtaposition to see the difference. We'll see more of it, I think, later between how this sort of tragedy is handled versus so this is the second husband that Alma has lost in the camp mm-hmm. and this is the second father slash family member that Sophia has lost but yeah comparing how our main characters handle it notably Al is super super different from yeah. how we met him in the pilot and I don't know if it it's earned like I don't know that Al is a rough formed individual but he's certainly acting differently and he seems to have a personal stake in sort of the well-being of of these people well he's a financial stake too right yeah in not letting the town descend into chaos for sure so i think alma is a i mean if if deadwood is always about the containment of chaos as civilization encroaches then alma is the is like the marker of civilization right she's a woman she's she owns a bank she has a small family that seems to show that deadwood is not the town that it it used to be she like uh built a new house in a residential area in the suburbs of deadwood essentially but so but the point is that al sees alma now instead of as a dumb woman with a stupid husband that is an easily exploitable target that Alma stands for something he eventually wants to see in town. I love that, Sita. I think your take is so great. And it's sort of like, uh, I don't I don't want to rephrase it, but like Alma as a litmus test for the well-being of the town. I think that is such a cool concept. And um, because we know that Molly Parker is back for the movie, I hope that that uh, metaphor continues through the the film um other little fun people coming together as this chaos descends uh that little scene where charlie finally sits down at the table and has a drink with dan and silas and johnny is a really nice moment in this whole episode completely i almost put that into my little minor subplot list but it felt substantial for his character that he would finally unburden himself and just have a drink with these kind of, I don't know, questionable, murderous <laughs> henchmen. I mean, yes, that's what they are. But in this moment, it really is, you know, we've seen plenty of moments where factions that would be against each other in other circumstances have had to come together a little bit. But coming together to put a plan of guarding the schoolhouse or whatever is different than sitting down and having a drink, right? Like this is really like they are bonded. Yeah. They are simply appreciating one another's company in, in a tense moment. And that we do see some other kind of interesting, strange combinations. Richardson and aunt Lou have continued their friendship. We get the sense because Richardson is sending a basket to Mrs. Marchbanks. I love that. From Mrs. Marchbanks <laughs> to Miss Caulfield as Jewel. Oh calls yes. Herself. Yep. Yes. She thinks we're learning a lot of <laughs> last names. Maybe. <laughs> Seems like she hasn't had to use that one in a while. And she's like, that is my name. Right. The delivery was <laughs> impeccable. Uh, good on Jewel for that. 
And then we do get some other sub side plots. I would say EB uh, finally wipes her spit off his face. That was fucking disgusting. I couldn't. I honestly gagged. I had to look away from the screen. And the second (laughs) time I watched it, I skipped this scene. Like, it's so (laughs) gross to think about. I can't. And now he's really mad at him. That's what I got. I mean, there's a lot of ranting, but now it's just like, I fucking hate that guy, too. There's no way that EB, of all people, is actually going to take some sort of definitive action that's going to change the course of the narrative at this point in things. So <laughs> I feel like it was just like we're nearing the end of the season. EB hasn't had a lot to do. We got to get this actor his like final monologue of the season. That's the only yeah. reason for it. I feel like we were given that was the same sort of reasoning behind Sai's whole Ugh. rant where he's ripping his prostitutes clothing and and demeaning them and it seemed to do it it had nothing to do with anything else that was happening and then we also get more theater stuff at this point i'm like why uh why with the theater that is valuable real estate where we're where we're still like in there i don't know upset about this new girl who's joining the troupe the stakes on this are so low compared to everything else that's happening. <laughs> it's kind of like, it's just from a different show. <laughs> like, this is a show about a theater on the frontier and their, like, company player issues. It Which I would so watch. Well, but like, it would not so well if it were done in the Christopher Guest style. If it's just, like, slings and arrows on the frontier, like, yes. that I will watch. But it's so weird. And we had this complaint about the last episode, too, and it's just enduring where, like, We have a really tight narrative. We have all of our core characters doing something super interesting with big stakes. And then we have to cut away for, I don't know, what is essentially a snack break for me. I can only think that thought a season four was coming and that there was going to be payoff in the theater troops because the theater troupe is somehow connected with Alice Regin's past. So that's the only saving sort of story thing I can think of with the theater group. Yeah, I think you're right. I think they were planted for season four. I mean, I don't know what they would have really earned us for payoff in season four because it just seems very like gossipy and high school theater esque mm-hmm. between the characters. Um, and I do think like the driving force of the seasons is usually some sort of crime against humanity, a murder or uh, the, something that affects the entire town. I don't see how you get that out of a theater troupe, but maybe Milch had a, a game plan. Well, I, I think part of the issue is with the theater uh, people is that they just don't interact with anybody else outside of themselves. So they're like a pod um, and their internal drama isn't interesting enough t- for us to want to watch them. So if like I were writing this theater storyline, I would make it so that they were so poor that they had to take odd jobs around the town so that we they'd be forced to interact with other characters, you know, mm-hmm. like without the benefit of having these new characters interact with characters that we actually cared about. There's no reason to pay attention to these storylines. You didn't care about Con Stapleton's erection? <laughs> Claudia has to be one of the most confusing of all of the characters that we've met in this world. She also seems to sleep in that big wig. (laughs) Oh, my God. She goes and talks to the other woman and she's in her nightgown, but with that big fucking wig on. And I'm just like, what is happening? (laughs) I am so glad that we did get more of Wu in this episode. He and Al get to have uh, 
it's a very short sequence. They seem to have, with Wu's new English and their familiarity with one another, their shorthand has gotten shorter. And basically, Al brings him to the gem instead of busting him in through like the side or the back door or whatever. He's like, the prostitutes must stand here and act like Wu is just another important customer. And then with his scribble and their their shorthand tells Wu to go get the men that he's been keeping in Custer City so that they can swell the numbers of the people on their side in this showdown with Hearst. And as Wu was leaving, I didn't think this episode had like too many incredible quotes, but I really liked the simplicity of like, Wu, big man, because <laughs> we, we, see, we see how uh, his perception of himself and his importance, and he understands that now he is crucial to the health of this town. Mm-hmm. And he's gone back to wearing his own clothes, but he's still holding his head high and acting, speaking back to Al about the plan. You know, it's mm-hmm. nice. Yeah, that was a nice sequence. I'm glad we got to spend a little bit more time with the Al Wu with the Hyundai. <laughs> <laughs> so what else do we have? Any nominations for most or least feminist moments or standout moments, guys? Uh, Trixie shooting hearse as most feminist moment. <laughs> it's debatable, right? Because I do love that she understands men enough to know that mm-hmm. she will completely obfuscate her actual identity just by showing her tits and twat. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I never thought about it that way, but no, you're right. That does make it feminist. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, kind of, because she's just. It depends on how we're defining it. Like, she's using what power she has in that moment. It's not not feminist. I just love that she reacted so much faster than every single yes. man in Deadwood. Yeah. yeah. Like, that she, body She made her rolled, mind up. She made her mind up. That body rolled through Deadwood for a good five minutes. Al was looking at it. Dan was looking at it. Everybody has, like, some stake in seeing Hearst, you know, uh, suffer or be harmed in some way. And she was the only one who took action. And I, She's like, just going to cut to the quick. She's yep. just going to exact justice because she knows it's the right thing to do. And it's not a some sort of plot point or machination for how will this affect other things. She just knows that guy didn't deserve to die. And I'm going yeah. to avenge his death. Yeah. I wish she had been a little less like, oh, kill me now to save the rest of you afterwards. Like... It, a little less weepy, maybe, but it's, that moment of righteous anger is incredible. I think that was yeah. the adrenaline wearing off. Yeah, for sure. I, I zero complaints about Paula Malcolmson's entire performance. It was pretty fantastic. So we're going to make that the most not not feminist moment. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, I really, really like that we just got Bullock thanking Al for handling the fallout of the shooting while he was out of town. And Al's protecting Alma and Sophia, whom once he was trying to kill. Mm-hmm. And huh? and just the way that they are working to the same end in this episode, it's my, it's my favorite note that Deadwood lands on sometimes. Overall, a really good episode with the exceptions that we always have, which is less sigh, less theater people, please. Um, that, that would have been our studio notes to them yeah we love brian cox give himself give him something else to do maybe he could become a bartender yeah great he likes to walk around town chatting with people let them come to him true true this guy he doesn't we don't know what his agenda is except theater (laughs) who knows 
we've got one episode left. I don't know how they could possibly satisfy all of the plot points that are hanging in the air within a 60 minute episode, but we're going to see, <laughs> we're going to see what they tried. Um, until then, you can find us on Twitter at Ladywoodcast. You can find me at WeeBrandy, O-U-I-B-R-A-N-D-I. I'm at Lynn Sternberger. And I'm at SlowBear, S-L-O-B-E-A-R. And thank you so much for listening. Thank you.